Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the thing that changed my life was when I was 14, I played the Resurrection Symphony by Mahler, uh, his second symphony, conducted by a really inspired conductor who's like a Mahler freak. And he was so smart because Mahler is perfect for that age because it's super goth. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. We got a special occasion. We have a, um, a, a let me let me work this out. We're we're on two different coasts of America and Central Europe. So this is Budgie in Berlin uh, introducing uh, to curious creatures, Jonas Policewoman. A big round of applause, coast to coast. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to see you. So good to see you too. Yeah, and Lowell. very good. Very good to see you, Joan. <laughs> Joan, you're in you're in New York. How's yeah. the weather? Horrible. Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's some brightness right now. Um, yeah. It's been like freezing rain, and I mostly get around bicycling, so. I, I put on ski suits, full <laughs> ski suits, and then another coat over. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a vibe here. It's not very inspiring. <laughs> no. But, uh, but yeah. Where, how's it over there? In Berlin, yeah, I, I also cycle around. I've been doing the school run today, backwards and forwards. And um, it's gray, cold, wet, very fine rain. It just sort of soaks you, but it doesn't feel like you have to get really cagooled up. Yeah. Um, it feels like we just got back to winter again. I thought we had a bit of spring mm. in the air. Yeah. Oh. Come on, Lol, well, tell us what's going on in Los Angeles. No, this is the time of year that I call up people in England and tell them, yeah, I'm sitting in the backyard with my shorts, and then they go, we hate you. Yeah. Oh, so it is that it, it's the Santranas have come in. So it was it was a little chilly last week, you know, like 65, 70. And now chilly. it's like a pleasant 75, 80, you know. So <laughs> I don't know. I, love, I mean, I love it when Lol says it's, it's a little chilly. <laughs> yeah, a little chilly. Yeah. Well, it is chilly for LA. I've lived here 25 years. So now that's chilly to me, you know. I mean, I don't, uh, I didn't, you know, 
I hated the rain and all that crap, you know, so I wanted to be here completely. And um, so when it rains here, everybody in California goes, oh, it's great. You know, we love the rain. And I go, no, no, you can keep the rain. Thank you very much. You know, I prefer the, the clear lights of the desert. Do you, do you fancy, would you, would you take a move to California, Joan? I was actually there last week. Yeah. And everyone was complaining about how cold it was. And you were, you, you were feeling <laughs> and, for them. Yeah. And I had rented a convertible Mustang, as you do, through a midlife crisis <laughs> while you're in L.A. And right. I popped down all the time and people were like, what is your problem? And it was summer for me. So, uh, yeah, I love L.A. I, I would I would I spent a lot of time there. When I learned to drive, I learned to drive so that I could get to Los Angeles on tour, rent a car, and leave the tour behind. For a right. <laughs> drive over go. the hill into the valley. But there yeah. used to be a place, uh, probably on Sunset, and it was called Rent a Wreck. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. was. And I used to pick up. Uh, it was, I think, it was open top, but it was, uh, it was something that I had as a kid, as a little model. And I thought, one day I'm going to mm. get myself one of those. It was like a Buick Riviera, Ooh. Like, like like a coupe, yeah, mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. door. Only thing was, because it was from Rentarec, when you hit the brake, it careered off to the left somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you had to counter steer as you braked. Uh. But what a lot of fun. Smelt of Bakelite and old car. Yeah, nice. Bench seat across the front, sliding yes. around. <laughs> oh, romantic. Oh, very, very romantic. So I take it your Mustang was a new model. Yeah, it was. But I have a thing for Mustangs because I my my family had one growing up. And they, I mean, it wasn't. It, that was like a family car. It was like a, wow. it wasn't a two door. I rented a two door. This was like a four door and it was, it was none of the souped up stuff, but it was still, it still had a V8. I mean, I remember my mom who was very sort of, um, <laughs> you know, pr- proper mm-hmm. would get very excited to rev the engine. Did she get behind <laughs> and, 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 and drive? I mean, she never went over the speed limit, but she got to the speed limit really fast. <laughs> <laughs> as as we get a little older, we start doing things that remind us of our of our youth. You know, the like 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 pleasant memories. You know, good mm-hmm. memories about things. And uh, so, actually, it's the reason I ended up here. I mean, because I came out here first when I was in my very early twenties, and when. When everything went crazy, sort of like in my 30s, I thought, well, okay, where am I going to go where I felt happy last, you know? So it's like it's like we're going yeah. back to that, that thing. And I thought, okay, well, I felt happy as a young guy in California. It was a nice, you know, experience. So I came back here and I've never left. Joan, I was listening to um, To Survive, right? Your second album, yeah. And I have to tell you, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I was very moved by it. And I realized the album was uh, about your mother in some ways, right? Yeah, my my mother passed away the year before that was released. So I was I was writing the record all around that time. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the melancholy came easily. It does anyway for me. I mean, sure. we're musicians. It's like that's, you know, I grew yeah. up listening to you guys. I can blame you. Mm-hmm. You can blame it. Well, a lot of people do. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's because of them. Yeah. Um, so, well, the thing, the reason I said that about, about that, that particular album, because it's my favorite, but also, um, we did that with the with the cure with faith and pornography. You know, my my mother died during faith, and uh, you know Robert's grandmother at the same time. So we had plenty of of material as well. You know, to I didn't you know, know that, which was exactly exactly why. But um, I really I really think listening to it because I've been listening to it in the car all week driving around and. Um, it's the American experience for me. All, all, all of those songs on there, it's absolutely, it's what I see when I, you know, because if you grow up in a place, like I, I go back to England from time to time, you know, and I take my wife with her and, and she grew up here in California and she loves yeah. everything in England because it's, you know, it's it's different and it's not where you grew up, you know. Well, the, the reverse is true. I came out here and I see things here that, other Americans don't see maybe sometimes, you know, because it's, it's, it's new to me. And I mean, that's one of the reasons me and Budgie talk about this a lot about going to different places and being in a different environment, because that makes you aware again, like you were when you were a child. So true. Yeah. I feel like also uh, losing a parent also brings you to, I mean, it's not, the same place but it's so you're so raw and and i mean i felt like that much more as a kid like all the barriers were not up i mean it wasn't as uh traumatic feeling but i felt like i felt things so much easier or uh, i was very you know i was like a sponge i was absorbing and then when you lose a parent or someone really close to you i feel like all of those barriers get ripped off again and like you just are like a sponge again do you agree yeah yeah absolutely it's like it's like as you know because you get little wounds as you go through life anyway but but when something like that happens it's like all those scabs are just ripped off again and you know it's like let's pour some salt in those wounds and stuff and so you have to uh, you have to do something to it's not just protecting yourself it's to explain it to yourself because otherwise you know because that stuff is going to happen all through through life and when it first happens it's like oh what you mean it doesn't just you know go along on this sort of it's like it has this huge dip somewhere and you've got to find a way out and that's that's where you know that's where music came in that's where art came in of any sort because that was the that was the, the panacea, you know. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna launch into the obvious bit there. That was the cure, but that was what we needed, you know. And that's how we did it. Yeah. We, me and Budgie, often talk about um, growing up as as like misfits in our in our town, you know. And was that the same for for you? Did you feel like that growing up? Oh yeah, my brother and I are both adopted, right. so we started as misfits. Right. My family, nobody looks anything alike. And uh, so, and, and you don't realize how much that's discussed when, if you're not adopted, 
people are always talking about, oh, you look like your mom. Oh, you got that from your dad, you know, all the time. And our parents like really made it comfortable for us. They moved to an area. My brother and I are different races. They moved to an area where like it would make like us both comfortable growing up in a very desegregated area and mm. schools that, you know, had kids that looked like both of us, but it, it's, you know, it, it, we all, we, I think we always just felt a little weird. People were like, that's not your brother. It's like, yes, it is. No, it's not, you know, this kind of stuff at school. <laughs> right. And, uh, right. you know, um, and yeah, I, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, there were, I think three years where I only wore red. Like I would, I refused to wear anything else. I, maybe that's normal for kids. Um, I, I don't, I didn't, I don't think I remembered anyone else doing that, but then like I, I started, I, I picked up the violin. They offered it cause it was the seventies. They offered it in elementary school when I was uh, in right. third grade. So eight, eight years old. Yeah. And, and, um, you could rent at that time, you could rent an instrument for a year for $10 so that oh, anyone wow. could do it. You know, I mean, that's the way it should be, but yes, not absolutely. now, you know, but that's how I got playing an instrument, you know, um, and my parents were very supportive, but they were not pushy. They did not, they were not, they didn't start me at three, you know, like you right, have to learn the Suzuki right. method. I said, I'm interested in doing this. And they were like, great, try it out, you know, and I really liked it. It was where I felt like, yeah, it was where I felt, I don't know, like connected to the world somehow. And I mean, uh, I'm, I feel really grateful I had experience playing classical music because you get to play an orchestra with like this huge band. Right. It's yeah. like a hundred piece band. And like feeling, uh, uh, the feeling of making a piece of music happen together. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the thing that changed my life was when I was 14, I played the Resurrection Symphony by Mahler, uh, his second symphony, conducted by a really inspired conductor who's like a Mahler freak. And he was so smart because Mahler is perfect for that age because it's right. super goth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really yeah. I mean, it sounds like Zeppelin kind of, you know. Yeah. And, and he really like sort of inspired us to, he taught us to breathe together. He taught me so much stuff that I do now in, in, you know, when playing with my band or even by myself, you know, just like breathing before you play and stuff, you know? And, um, that was really when I, I, I decided like, this is what I have to do. This is the only thing that matters, you know? uh, is, is music. And I had already, I was at that point, I was listening to both of you and I had, you know, I had a white Mohawk and I was playing the violin. Oh, wow. Good. And boy, did that make me a misfit. Yeah, I would think so, but that's good. That's good. I'm glad that we, we inspired that maybe. I'm just thinking where the violins are, you know, the violins are kind of stage right. I usually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. And then where would you be? Middle with the white mohawk? 
Well, I didn't, I didn't like spite, like it was more like, you know, I wasn't like exploited. Okay. It wasn't like King's Road special. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Floppier. You know, they, (laughs) they were, they did not know what to make of me. Although there would always be like one, especially like, you know, the cellists are always goth. Right. There, you yes. would, there, there would be a cellist or someone else in the orchestra that, like, of course, we knew each other because we had black mm. eyeliner on and, mm. like, checking you out. Yeah. Okay. A million earrings or whatever. What were your moments where you were like, this is what, this is, I got to do music now. I realized I got to do music forever. For me, it was like, I suppose, um, I sang in the choir when I was at school. Um, and I, without realizing it, I was getting a musical education. I, I, did, I always said, I never learned to read music. And yet, if I remember being in the choir, we had charts in front of us. We had... Uh, the hymns in Latin and the mm. notation, and I was following it. When the Liverpool has two cathedrals, one's Anglican and one's Roman Catholic, and the Roman Catholic one is much newer. The Anglican one is still being built, but it's several hundred years old. Mm. But the Roman Catholic one was it was opened in the seventies, and I was like a kid in the choir. And what they did was they got the all the choirs they could find in the northwest Britain to come together and sing at the grand opening of the cathedral. Mm. And one of the pieces was the Alleluia Chorus. Uh, And I I just, and and lots of other silly little things as well. It was kind of a a serious and humorous thing. But it's where I fully realized the power of being with other people. I didn't Mm. fully understand it then. And after that, I joined little bands maybe in our street and we got together to play music. But it was that, that first, it was almost like a dream. Lol, what did you, what did you find? Well, it was two, two things because, you know, I, I grew up on the periphery of London. So, you know, that was always the, the sort of the shining thing that I wanted to be, to go to, but I couldn't really go to it when I was like, you know, 12, 13, you know, you've got all this stuff running around but you don't know what to do so the library was the place that i got to first of all and the library used to rent out records you know Mm -hmm. as well as books so and i got a whole bunch of records and and i kind of sort of went through all of the 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 stuff they had all the blues and all the things and it made me really excited you know my sister gave me her old record player and then when we went back to school we started back in this middle school that was like you know it was a catholic middle school it was a little more progressive but they had a music room so we broke into the music room at lunchtime because they wouldn't let you in there normally you know like lunchtime and uh, Robert had like this little Woolworths guitar that we sort of plugged into the stereo system and uh, I think Michael had had a bass at that point as well and I just stole the drum kit. Sorry, guys. I'll get I'll get you one back. But um, you know, you can imagine in England. You know, do you want to go out into the playground with all the other kids where it's pouring with rain and you you've got to you know run around and try and avoid you know the lunatics and and all the rest of it all day long? Or do you want to get in the music room where it's nice and warm and you can do something, can play something? So that's where 
it all started for me. I and, just think it's what yeah. this is brilliant about you guys as the cure. <laughs> Because you're like little schoolboys with short oh, pants yeah. almost. Oh, yeah. Know. We did <laughs> have short pants. Have... Well, Robert had a dress at that point. Robert had a dress. Yes. Well, of course he did. Yes. Yeah. In and fact, I think he got expelled because he had the dress on. He, well, that was a little later on. We were allowed, to, you know, as we got older, we were allowed to wear our what own. What was the video? Uniform. The video you did where you were all, the, the three of you had a little yeah. younger. Those boys don't cry when we put that out again. Yeah, we do. We got there three, go. and we auditioned all those those kids to play us, which was kind of funny, you know, trying to find somebody who looks like you or acts like you. you know. <laughs> it was, that was interesting. But it's but, just um, the fact that I, I I had like a couple of guys down the street, and I, we would all dutifully walk down with a big plastic bag full of vinyl, you know, singles or albums. And then it was very uh, structured. We had to sit there in in, the, in this room, and we were allowed to play one track each, and it went in rotation. Mm. So you quickly realised if you got the latest prog rock album, you could play one track and get more more <laughs> airtime, more playing time. But we then, of course, we wanted to make our own records, so we we couldn't. You know, we just got some instruments. And we made a cassette, and we made a sleeve for it, twelve inches, and put the cassette in the middle of it, and and that's it. But you guys went off <laughs> and signed a deal and got. Well, yeah, was, you know, I was like, all of us were like, heart. We, it was the end of high school. And we were all getting ready to, you know, like, well, you better go to college or you better do something, you know. And we also got halfway there, and then you know. <laughs> It stopped, Turn and we're back. like, "No, this is much, <laughs> much better. We we'll, we should do this," you know, and and I think you could more then as well. I mean, you know, maybe that sounds like uh, like oh, it was always much better in the old days, but it kind of, you know, I came to America and managed to tour around America with like you know, three dollars in our pocket and and uh, a small van, and we could do it and get get around and actually survive, you know. So that mm. that was that was really good to do and an education in itself. Early days, Joan. Early days, early bands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. So I've been listening to, like, you know all of this amazing music and then playing classical music. Right. Mm. You know, because I mean, there was John Cale. Right. And there was John Cale, you know, that, that, that like represented, I mean, when Laurie Anderson came out, it was like, whoa, yeah. you know, um, but there wasn't really strings like, I mean, uh, on her huge hit single, it wasn't like heavy with strings. Like John Cale, I heard that screeching and I was like, yes, but I didn't ever think like, oh, I can, I could do this in a band. So, but I also loved classical music, but I'd be going to like, you know, in high school, going to like the CB's matinees. So when I got, I mean, I remember jamming a little bit to Hendrix. Like maybe I could like I think I learned the Little Wing solo, um, and and then I also remember jamming to the Cocteau Twins mm -hmm. because you know it felt very 
Like I could, I could get lost in there and I wouldn't make too much of a mess or something. <laughs> you know? And then I got to, got to school. I studied, uh, I studied classical violin for, for college and I, I was scared to not play. I, I didn't know really how to play off the page. Like I had been just playing music from reading for that's what I knew. Right. My sister is, is a music teacher and she had the same uh, thing, you know, when we, we were only like two years apart and when we were growing up, you know, like you could put stuff in front of me. I can't play it. You know, I can go, well, maybe it's that and this and that, but you know, I can play my own stuff and I do my own stuff. And she, yeah. you know, the other way around, you could put anything in front of her and she just goes, all oh, right, plays on the piano and it's done. You know, but you ask her to do her own material and she'll play you something and you go, yeah, okay, that bit's the Beatles, that bit's this. And so she hasn't got that thing. So to make that leap from being, you know, a, a trained classical musician to being your own person is is quite magnificent, really, because I don't know a lot of people that can do that, you know? I think it helped that I was really bad. <laughs> How do you mean? I mean, I... I, I think it helped that I never thought of music as notes on a page. Like I learned how to play the the violin through, you know, reading music. But like I play piano and I I don't I can't really read music on the piano and I certainly cannot read music on the guitar. So like I taught myself a bunch bunch of instruments that I play now in bands that I can't read. And I, I mean, like they, they had us like learn theory, but I always did it mathematically and I never mm. heard it and don't hear anything as a, as a subdominant chord. I just, it's not, my brain doesn't work that way. It's all by ear. So I think that really helped me. I, I didn't realize also like, I I know I had talent. I wouldn't have gotten into school if I didn't. But what I had more of was passion. Right. You know, like, I, I mean, I noticed in school, like, the people that started when they were three were technically outrageous. They could do all yeah. this crazy shit, Paganini, that I could honestly, if I spent my life practicing, probably wouldn't get near you know, it's like that kind of stuff that you have to start when you're way too young to really, yeah. you know, uh, and, you know, I, I think the passion just was always front forward and, and I cared about the, you know, I, I had, I had feeling once more with feeling, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. had, fe I had yeah. the feeling, I think that really helped. Yeah. No, absolutely. When you were talking about it, I could tell. That's the connection, and that's why uh, you you know you approach it in that way because it comes from a completely different source. It's not mathematical. It's not a calculation. It's like this is me. This is me. I played the piano like me. It's like you know, Baji will tell you this. We play the drums like us. You know, that's because sure. that's the only way you could do it. There's a whole load of stuff that I look at certain people and I think never in a million bloody years could I play that. But it doesn't matter because it's not part of the experience. Our experience is playing us.
have a song on my first record that I um, called "The Ride." That uh, that I I wanted I wanted to write a song for Whitney Houston to sing. Okay. Okay. And so I I, I wrote that song thinking like this is like. Like the point was, I'm going to write a song that I would never sing, but that someone with her voice would sing. And I mean, I do love, I, I mean, I love her. And like, yeah. I just always like, was like, oh God, what if I could write a song that Whitney Houston would sing one day? <laughs> and so I wrote this song and, and, and I recorded it thinking like, I'm going to send it, try to get it to her somehow. And everyone's like, no, you're putting that on your record. And I was like, uh-uh. You know, and and they said, no, that's your song, actually. Like, that's your song. Like, you need to put it on the record. I mean, and then it turned out to be a lot of people's favorite song on the record. Um, but I really didn't hear it as my song because I was, like, making a Whitney Houston song. Right. Just to go back to, you know. But, it, of course, it doesn't sound like a Whitney Houston song. Were you hearing her voice as you were putting it together? I was, Yeah. yeah. And it does sound slightly different from my other songs because it has that feeling in it that I don't think I necessarily tend towards writing, you know? So, yeah. It kind of gives you a license to go somewhere you would, wouldn't ordinarily go. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's, that's like uh, the way people think about dreams. You know, people have these dreams and they go, oh yeah, and then this happened and that happened and this big man came down and chopped a tree down and I heard this theory the other day that everybody, everybody in your dreams is you, right? Everybody, oh, right? Yeah. So maybe it's like the same thing with songs. You know, you think, okay, I'll write in a Whitney Houston song, but actually what you're doing is projecting you through Whitney Houston, you know, and then you have to sing it and you sung it so it's you you know but uh yeah. yeah i mean i know that's true because uh when we did kiss me you know we did this double album and we just pretended to be all these different bands that we liked you know growing up so yeah we just channeled different different bands you know? come on name a few yeah name, name a few of robert's <laughs> well no i mean yeah i mean there's a zeppelin one in there but that was that was um oh. that was that was Pearl, the, the the Zeppelin one. I wonder how many tracks Mr. David Bowie has been um, channeled through. Like, what would Bowie do if he sang this one? <laughs> Joan, I've been listening, like I said, I've been driving around listening to... Um, your album, my favorite one, to survive. And I was thinking that the lyrics are very vulnerable, very raw and open. And that's what I like. You know, when I when I read words, I can tell whether when people are trying to, you know, project something or convince me of something. And I can tell when people are trying, you know, are not trying, they're just they're channeling whatever it is that's that's with them. So Obviously, with that, that comes from your 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 mother and 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 that traumatic event. But where where are your other um, influences? What else do you do? You, do you, I mean, like, if I think about the the Cure writing, we would always write. You know, the lyrics were like our diary more than anything else. I can look at them and I can see. Okay, I remember exactly 
why that what was going on what was happening is that the way you you feel about them does it does it have the same power as the music or is it a separate thing for you yeah absolutely i mean it, i'm the same like whatever's happening at that moment that's what's going to be coming out in the music i i don't i i, I can't like craft a narrative in my mind of some story like i'm not dylan you know it's like right. i am and maybe all of his songs are also completely personal and he works them out through mm. patty carroll yeah. or whatever but yeah. uh yeah it's it's I, I always the music comes first and then the words come from that like yeah i don't i don't start with the with the words uh-huh. it, almost never it comes from the music that's where i think it feels the most like where the feeling is created easiest that's where i'm most able to get the most emotion that i'm feeling into music right first without the words words are getting you know we'll mess it messy it up you know so start with the music and the sound of the chords and the movement then the words will come from that because often i don't have the words f- to describe what i'm feeling mm. and i don't even completely know but then the music will show me what i'm feeling do you ever have that experience where i'm not completely uh coherent on how i'm feeling and then the the music gets me there and then i'll have words to describe yeah I'm just thinking back to say I, I always think if I think about Banshee's writing, and the, the, always the moment is when we were doing something like Spellbound and Arabian Nights, and I'm pretty sure the words were never there. We had music for Arabian Nights, and it was in the waltz time. It was like mm-hmm. three, right. four, ding, digga, dong, ding, digga, dong, ding, digga, dong, ding, and then John McGeeock just kind of played through it in like fours mm. made it into a, a kind of a rock song mm. yeah. but th- th- i think susie had the idea of lifting she she got immersed in l- looking at what the quran was saying mm. and what 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 how it had been interpreted but and then a twist on it all and and just thinking how many subversive words she could get into one lyric right <laughs> Yeah, past the BBC censors, you know. That sounds like a... Did you, do you have, like, go-to phrases or words that just kind of fill the gaps until the, the words come? I really sing nonsense, even. Like, yeah. It so- sounds sometimes just without words uh, will be obvious without the word yet, but the sound, like the vowel sound or, yeah. or the, yeah. And then sometimes I just even keep that or there'll be just, it'll get filled in somehow. It's, it feels very sort of like the thing is done and it's been exploded and sort of you're going back in time and it's, I, I, you know, it's just like a, that crazy sort of magical thing. And sometimes I have to wait for a long time for like even just the last couple words, like, ah, oh, this isn't working, this isn't sure. working. And then I'll be like going to get another coffee and bam, there it is. 
Why didn't I think that before? <laughs> well, because you didn't. You had to wait. <laughs> it's 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 funny you know like listening to all the different ways of doing things some of them like for the, for the good that we had a big box full of lyrics you know like i would sit and write sit and just throw them in throw them in he he would write things wow. so the the box would accompany us to the studio you know and robert was the keeper of the box obviously you know he's got to sing them but um there was stuff from him stuff from me stuff from simon in there and and you know bits would get pulled out like oh well maybe this you know and it, it was either or sometimes music sometimes the words you know and and you know it was like everything was in was in the mix that's why when we had a fire in uh the studio when we were doing disintegration you know and i was disintegrating um you know, they had to rescue the words from the, uh, the bedroom because, you know, they, they're uh, a pivotal thing as as well, you know, to drive different ideas as well. So it comes from both sides, you know, because I definitely get the bit about, you know, okay, you make the music, the music's channeled, and it suggests something to you. So, you know, you start singing that, and, uh, and eventually something comes out that you like, and you think, that's right, that's what it means. But it, it it's a two way street can can go backwards and forwards. You know? Yeah, that's really more my thing. Anyway, I I, I kind of I vener, venerate words. It's taken me all my life to realise I'm a writer as well, so I should do that. Yeah, I feel like the music taps into the subconscious in a way that I can't get to with words yet. Right. So I feel like it really tells me the music tells me what the words that are in there that can't get out you know like because the the sound of the chords are how i'm feeling or something you know what i mean yeah yeah well because the 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 playing is like your id you know it's like yeah. okay this is yeah. my emotion coming out blah, exactly. blah 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 you know yeah and that will trigger off the subconscious they're saying right. this is what you're really thinking about this is what you're which is why you know hence the um the the song you wrote for Whitney Houston, you know, really somewhere underneath it all, your your subconscious was going. You need to channel your inner Whitney, you know. I always I always thought it was kind of interesting to hear. We had two two Susie and Severin writing lyrics, and mm. interesting to hear how easy her own lyrics came to sing, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. problematic sometimes. And sometimes not, but I suppose uh, he would find a way of knowing how somebody Susie would sing. Mm-hmm. But I suppose when you're a writer writing words, you're looking at that. It's the, the the feel and the look and the sound of those words. Maybe as a singer, you're thinking, "How do I sing this? How's it going to vocalize?" And that's right. when when you try to fit words with a similar vowel sound to the vowel you've been using in i've got a bit of a melody idea but i don't know what to sing here you know yeah well you know lyrics are neither prose nor poetry there's they fit somewhere else you know completely yeah. you know you know where i keep yeah. finding i keep digging out old books and, and, and there'd be a page marker and it's a written sheet in Susie's handwriting mm. of like a lyric with gaffer tape on top and bottom where i'd stuck it yeah. to the, the middle drum the rack tom on my kit so yeah. I could follow the lyrics because I wasn't following chord shapes. The guys were kind mm-hmm. 
plotting through the I was just following the lyric because I wanted to punctuate the lyric. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. just amazed me, Budgie. I thought I knew everything about you, but that's exactly the way that I followed everything as well. I didn't listen to like I wasn't sitting in my head counting like that's bar four, that's bar. Mm-mm. I'd be listening to what Robert's singing. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, exactly yep, yep. the same that's thing. That's why your bands. That's why your music sounds the way it does, and why it's so special. Like when the drums are reacting to the vocals, just everything sounds good. When you write from a place that you find initially sometimes difficult to go to and the music supports you through it, and then you have to, or you're expected to, revisit that place night after night on a two-month tour, and it's demanding, uh, exhausting, but not because of the distance travelled or the length of set, but because of the place you have to maybe emotionally go to. Yeah, absolutely. How do you protect yourself? I really don't. No. I, 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 it always happens like the first two weeks of tour, I will cry on stage. Mm. And I mean, it may not be completely obvious to everyone, but I'll have to stop singing and pretend I'm doing something jazzy. You know, uh, (laughs) because I I don't really write songs that aren't about the most important things to me, which are super emotional. So, yeah, so that that always that always happens. And then it still happens. It's not like after two weeks, I'm good to go forever. Uh, I I mean, I I I sort of. you know, growing up, I think this is true for a lot of people, but growing up, I just wanted to be bulletproof and put up all the walls and was like a brawler and, you know, like, oh, I can carry that amp, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any help from you, you know, and, um, and, you know, and then I like just crashed and, you know, from like way too much. Um, substances, everything, the whole thing. Um, and just really, uh, trying to deny that I was a human being and had an extraordinary, um, uh, you know, um, amount of fear that I was unwilling to admit to, uh, because I just wanted to be, you know, infallible or something, you know, whatever. And, then you know i i mean it was then that i started writing songs once i uh, once i started to just like break down and have to really change my life a lot is when i started writing songs and it was horrifying i was you know i didn't think i had anything to i i didn't think my voice really what what was the point of me singing when for instance Bowie existed. I mean, I was around a lot of like outrageously good singers and had toured with a lot of them. And uh, I was like, what do I have to offer really? You know, and it took me a long time to, 
make a decision that I had something to offer. Yeah. Well, you know, you know I, I can tell you what you had to offer because I, I hear it. I hear it. It's beautiful. I mean, that the, the, the melancholy angst that comes out of uh, the music and it can only be you singing it because that's what makes it what it is and so you know I if I get that and I don't know you you know I know that and I can get that I can understand that so that's that's the reason and it's like everything that we do here it it's like you know it's cathartic and it helps and and it allows us to live you know because me and Badger come to those points that you mentioned where you don't uh you know, you don't really understand yourself anymore. And then suddenly there's this big explosion and you do, you know, and you start back on that path. Yeah. The cliched sort of term is midlife, the crisis. Yeah. Mm. But um, I recognize that, I recognize it in you now of a, of a kind of, not knowing you as the, the person, the, the wild rebel that you just described. But I, 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 we have this kind of strange thing with um, with YouTube now, where you come, you can come across footage of a younger self, oh and go, "Who is that person?" Yeah. Attitude, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I thought yeah. I was quiet. I was the quiet one, yeah. but apparently yeah. not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of anger. Yeah. A lot of angst, mm-hmm. and a lot of. Uh, yeah, just a lot of confusion. And I mean, it was in public as well. Oh God. Yeah. 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 I mean, gr- I mean, being human is really confusing. It certainly yeah. is. I mean, I don't understand how more people don't go completely nuts. Like maybe we all did. You know, I, I don't understand how anyone keeps it together otherwise. Especially anyone right now. I know. Seems like they're doing all right. I'm like, you might have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's okay. It's okay. At least we found a way out. And that's what I look at. You know, we, we found a solution. Yeah. yeah me, well, music really helped me a lot. Always throughout my life. Gave me a reason to k- keep living. Can we just say, Joe, it's been wonderful to have you as a guest. Yes, absolutely. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for this. I owe you. <laughs> We're doing curious questions, Lol. Curious questions, yes. Band meetings, and this is from Scrubby. Scrubby, hello. hello. I don't know where Scrubby is from. Well, okay. I think Scrubby is sounds good wherever they're from. This is what Scrubby says. Band meetings are always mystical occasions. But what was it like having to attend one? Was there democracy or was it a case of my band, my rules, a la Banshees with Sue and Severin? How did it feel when a band member was sacked or left? Was it a fair decision or acrimonious? John McGeek was sacked from the Banshees by Stephen Severin. But was it a show of hands or were there other motivations such as getting Robert into the Banshees? Probably fair to say some of these questions are close to the bone, but it would be interesting to know more than the Banshees' autobiography. That's that book that uh, I've seen. Oh, yes. Shed light on. <laughs> Love the podcast and the stories. Yes. Uh, 
come back missing the essential Tuesday afternoon. Listen, all the best chaps. Scrubby. So I think what he means is he's not hearing season two yet, no. but he'll be amazed to find out he's on season he two. He will be. Uh, thanks, Scrubby. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about mystical meetings. <laughs> no, I quite like you, though. It's a strange. I, uh, I think yeah. we could have done with a bit of mysticism sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very rarely. Had, we had, no, we actually, it's not true. We had a lot of band meetings. Most of them were like, you know, the, the meetings you have to attend and which you don't want right. to the accountants meetings. Or, oh, you know, yeah. those yeah. once a year affairs. Um, and then we would meet to sort out ideas for the upcoming album or the, how we're going to do the upcoming tour. Um, mm. So that part of it was the, there was a kind of like a, an unspoken hierarchy. You know, I was, after the original band split, I joined the benches. I was the first one in, if you like. We, all, we almost were, we were a three-piece with you know right. with hired guitarists until uh yeah. until john mcgeoch settled in mm. um and you he's right that you know the the sacking of it it, it sounds like a i guess a bit of a it's a harsh word really um mm. but yeah the decisions had to be made i think you always hope for like a democratic thing when we brought new people in and it was always a new guitarist we would have little right. auditions, and I think the first one, The Cure, were all present. That's right, we were. I do re recall auditioning around the time of uh, John Klein joining the band. And again, there were lots of Johns came down. It seems like we must have had this thing going, only Johns should apply for this position. Yeah. Because we only have yeah. guitarists called John. Um, well, it'd make it easier, wouldn't it? As you like, you know, you wouldn't have to learn anybody's name. Yeah. You could just go, John. <laughs> I sometimes think, you know, it, it must be very difficult joining a band that's been going as long as the Banshees were going. Each John came in, had to learn what the other John had done before and the previous Johns. This sounds terribly like a story about <laughs> clients of a certain uh, occupation, yeah. doesn't it? Um, yeah. But, but uh, just you basically had to learn the, the, the material. And how the previous guitarist would have played their their own style as well. Um, long long answer again, because um, <laughs> it's a long lot. We had a lot of substitutes. We had a lot of yeah. additional. We had a lot of changes in the band, and as right. you know, to hopefully not to repeat everything, it. It certainly gave a nucleus, a feeling of a nucleus, because you were one of the ones that right. were, were, was always there. Um, but it must have felt a little unnerving to be the one that just joined. And yeah, I imagine. And so, I think yeah. there was a kind of a, there was never a kind of uh, what's the word, a requirement other than you could you could do the work that was needed, but there was an unspoken if you like, code of ethics that nobody ever really knew what they were. Right. But the guitar guitarists tend to fall foul of them. And I owned, so for the first time ever, I'm thinking as I'm answering this in a long-winded mm. way, I wonder if there was a sort of, what's the word, a, a self-sabotage, a shooting in the foot. That, that mm. when, you know, so like 
I've had enough of this. I think I'm going to do something that will guarantee I'm asked to leave. That's <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. It's a bit like a bit like leaving the relationship when you're not very good at ending relationships. You yeah. like being there, you love what you've done, but it's time to move on and you're not quite sure how to say that. So you do something that's going to sabotage your chances and almost guarantee you'll be asked to leave. And I do wonder right. if that was sometimes the case or was it completely by chance and they never saw it coming? I wonder. Yes. Did they fall or were they pushed? Um, band meetings for the cure, they started off being kind of like you know, myself, Robert, Michael, and then it was Robert and me, and then it was just Robert. Mm. So I can't say that band meetings, you know, would would were like a big feature after a, a while. I mean, probably up until about the time that I left, I, I can't imagine that there are um, big meetings about a lot of things because Robert tends to do a lot of it himself. I think most... Uh, bands you know at some point you have to you know the cure is very democratic but you know you have to have a leader at some point because otherwise things don't get done you know everybody's going well i think we should do this i think we should do that and so you know sometimes we have votes but mostly it's like well maybe this is the best way okay and we'd agree it, it, it kind of depended on what what the what was um what was the decision that had to be made yeah. For for yeah. instance, choosing songs that were like to, to put together for um, we did a covers album, and and quite right. often. So originally, the Banshees did a, a couple of songs from the Beatles' uh, White album that right. they would play in Helter Skelter from that album before I joined, and of right. course we did yes. Dear Prudence once I was in the band. Both of them right. had to pass Susie's test. Could she sing them? Not note for note, but. Mm. Did the lyric resonate with her? Right, and, and I understand yeah. that. And oh. so, Helter Skelter, certainly. She could actually take mm -hmm. it and change it and make it her own. And to a certain extent, Dear Prudence fitted the mood probably that was right at the time. But there were many other songs that, you know, the boys in the band, you know, John McGee, yes. John McGee Ockham, and Severin, myself, would think, oh, these would be great for the band to play. We would just get the sound so right. And then we'd look at the words and go, oh, no. That She's never going to sing, sing They don't mean band. anything. Right. They'd have no meaning. They're just like those bands where the guy who was playing, it was the lyricist, uh, slung some words together because they needed some words to hang on this great riff that they'd got. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. And but, that that's yeah. something that never happened in, in the band. She's, well... Yeah, yeah, and I would say that's true as well for The Cure because, you know, the lyrics meant a lot and still mean a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that we would have, you know, said to Robert, oh, look, this is a great song. Sing this one about Moon in June and stuff. Yeah. He's not going to do that. Um, I was going yes. to say, I was gonna, the, the, where there should have been, uh, you know, if like somebody with more more uh, understanding say is plan uh, planning tours where somebody's yeah. looking at it from a logistical point of view and somebody's looking at it from a financial point of view um, but yeah, you really could do with some looking at it from a physical and health point of view for a vocalist <laughs> when you've got yeah. a very loud band with a loud drums and big amplification yeah. and w without pre-in-ear monitors we got bad, not not the best monitoring system. Maybe um, it's that 
that was when that yeah it's 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 important to makes the the choices and the decisions but well you made a very good point there because i think most bands could have benefited from somebody coming in and going uh you know what you should probably not do more than six months of this yeah you know take a break probably not go on the road for for a year and a half because yeah. you know things will go berserk mm. and don't go in the studio mm. because you've got nothing else to do you know just have a break. Right. Nobody ever said that. Right. Like, well, no, and they should have done. We, that, it would have that's been when easy. we needed the meeting. Yes. Meeting to have Isn't a break. Isn't it funny? Because we were never asked to come to a meeting to decide, what would you like to be doing uh, for the next couple of months? Yeah. Would you like yeah. to have a vacation? We go like, ooh, a vacation. Well, no. We've never had one of those. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.